I'd like to speak with you uh, briefly this evening, congregation, and, and dear visiting friends, about a very uh, simple and straightforward question, really, I think. Uh, what is the true uh, meaning of Christmas? And I'd like to do that with you from just two verses. If you have a Bible and would like to turn there, uh, I will be in Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. If you prefer to simply have the order of service open, it is in the fourth uh, reading. However, because there are not uh, verses uh, throughout that, uh, I'll direct your attention to the right place. It is beginning in verse 11, for there is born to you uh, this day. Excuse me, let me go back to verse 10. Then the angel said to them, do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So what is the true meaning of Christmas? For many it is parties and presents food, and family get-togethers. On the other hand, for many, it is a time of stress and of loneliness. For some, financial concern. I was made aware this week that you can take out a special holiday loan from our local credit union and receive special low interest rates. You can even uh, run up your holiday credit, and then uh, transfer it in January to a lower interest rate so you can pay off all of those presents that are now under the tree. Uh, or is it perhaps uh, that Black Friday time, uh, we bemoan it in our family every year, when inevitably it seems there is some altercation or fight or even shooting, uh, God forbid, in one of our malls, around the country, and I always, every year now say to Heather, rather predictably, uh, look at how we are celebrating the birth of the Messiah uh, in such a way as this. Uh, what is uh, the true meaning of Christmas? Not long ago, as some Scottish worshipers were walking across the beautiful and historic town square in Glasgow to church to celebrate Christmas Eve service, much as we are doing together this evening, uh, a couple of policemen uh, could be seen standing close to the city nativity display, and someone asked the officers, uh, what are you doing, sirs? Are you guarding the manger? Um, Why, yes, they said. We are, in fact, guiding, uh, guarding the manger. Uh, you see, last year, baby Jesus was stolen and we are here to make sure that it doesn't happen again. It is a parable of how so many celebrate and observe Christmas. They do so all together without Jesus. You see, to celebrate Christmas without Jesus would be like celebrating a king's coronation without the king showing up. We continue to wish for blessings of Christmas, but we have lost the blesser, the benefactor, 
Uh, we've missed the entire reason uh, for Christmas. Uh, we've already seen tonight, and the uh, New Testament stories of the nativity of Jesus are filled with Old Testament prophecies uh, concerning his birth, which tells us that the coming of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, was no event that occurred uh, out of nowhere, uh, did not occur in a vacuum, was prophesied of old by the prophets of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a book uh, about Jesus. The New Testament, of course, obviously, is about Jesus. The whole Bible centers on the person and work and coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, how can our Christmas celebrations and our Christmas observances be otherwise? How can they not keep Jesus, his person, and his work at the center? So what is the true meaning of Christmas? The first thing I want you to see tonight is what the angels say in Luke 2, verse 10. And it is this, that the birth of Jesus is nothing short of good tidings of great joy which will be to all uh, the people. Uh, we experienced a birth of a baby in our church family this week. Uh, what a joyous occasion and reason to celebrate. Uh, every birth of a baby is good news. But when have you heard a baby's birth described in this way? The birth of this baby is cause for exceedingly great joy. And not just for his own parents or his family, but for all people everywhere. This is not like the kind of good news you get when students you find out that you did well on a test. It's not the kind of good news as when your favorite sports team wins the big game, or even, for example, when your preferred candidate wins an election. This is exceedingly good news. This is news that made the angels sing. Gloria. Glory to God in the highest. This is life-changing news. This is world-altering news. This is the best news anyone ever heard. And why? Two reasons. Because of who Jesus is. He is Christ the Lord. And because of what he came to do. He came to save. First, the birth of Jesus is exceedingly good news because of who he is. Look at what the angels say. He is Christ the Lord. He is the long-awaited Messiah King. He is the one uniquely chosen by God and anointed by God and by God's Spirit for this. He is God's only begotten Son, the unique Son of God, who has come to reign and to rule in the hearts of his people as their Lord. He has come to inaugurate his everlasting kingdom, as we read, which even now is at work dwelling in the hearts of his people 
and one day shall fill heaven and earth in all its fullness and bring everlasting joy and righteousness and peace to all who trust in Christ as their Savior and Lord. Oh, dear friends, look at the condition of our world. Look at the news out of Syria, the suffering children in Aleppo, the terrorist acts on a weekly basis, it seems. Look at the spread of sin and of evil. Isn't it good news that the kingdom of God has come in the coming of Jesus Christ and that we can know his joy and his peace even today and that his kingdom will come in its fullness. One day everyone everywhere will submit to him. One day everyone everywhere will bow the knee to him. One day everyone everywhere will confess that he and he alone is Lord. Something you must understand These were fighting words in ancient Rome. This was a political statement, if it was anything. This was a brief manifesto. It was the earliest Christian confession to say that Christ is Lord. If you asked anyone on the street that day who was Lord, they would have said, Caesar Augustus. It's obvious. Surely he was the sovereign Lord of the Roman Empire. Some have said, without, with good reason, he may have been the most powerful man who ever lived. But what the angel is saying is that there is one who is Lord of all. Lord of all eternity. Lord of the universe. Who reigns in men's hearts. He's the king and ruler of all nations, the only true sovereign, the one to whom Caesar and everyone is subject, whether they acknowledge his lordship now or not. The angel is saying something here, no less than this. Jesus and not Caesar, and today we might add, not Obama or not Trump or not Putin, Jesus, is Lord. The second reason the birth of Jesus is exceedingly good news is because of what he came to do. He came to save. There is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior. Jesus Christ had a mission a mission that he came to fulfill and to accomplish when he came to earth. He came to save. He came on a rescue mission from heaven to earth. The word save can mean to save from any calamity, a natural disaster, the dangers of war, captivity. But in the Bible, the fullest sense of the word Salvation means, in the ultimate sense, to save from sin, from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and finally, the presence of sin. The angel makes that abundantly clear when he visits Joseph in Matthew's gospel and says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save 
his people from their sins. Jesus Christ came to earth to deal with sin. He came to overcome sin. He came to die for sin. He came to conquer sin. And he came to save from sin. And according to the Bible and the angels, this is exceedingly good news. Now we have a problem, dear friend. The problem is this. For many people today, this does not sound like good news. It does not sound like important news. It does not sound like anything they need to hear or want to hear. How can the best news ever spoken, how can the best gladdest tidings ever heard seem like no news at all to so many people? It can only be because they have forgotten two things. Perhaps they never knew who God is and who they are. They have forgotten, or perhaps they have never come to understand, or it has been obscured to them that God is holy, that he is righteous, and that he is just, that he is the perfect judge of all. To say that God is holy is to say that he is transcendent and set apart and morally perfect and righteous in all his ways and upright in everything. It is to say that he is infinitely great and incomparably good. His holiness means that in him there is no darkness at all, no spot, no blemish, no stain whatsoever of evil or of darkness or of sin. The Bible says that because God is holy, he cannot look upon sin, that sin cannot dwell in his presence, that for a fallen sinner to approach the perfect holiness of God to approach him in his glory and majesty can only lead to that sinner's death and ruin and destruction. But we don't think of God in that way today. We have fully domesticated God. We've tamed him. We've brought him down to size. We've made him very much like a slightly improved version of ourselves. But he is the everlasting one. He is the Lord God Almighty, the sovereign King of heaven and earth, the one who is holy and righteous and just, that merely to look upon him in his holiness is to be reduced to ruins with a sense of one's own desperate unworthiness and misery. That's our first problem. We don't think much of God. And our second problem, not only do we not see God in his holiness, but we don't see ourselves in our exceeding sinfulness. We style ourselves as good in our own eyes, but we do not see ourselves as God sees us, as the Bible says we are. 
fallen, sinful, needy, depraved, wretched, miserable, unworthy. You see, dear friend, because God is infinitely holy, to sin against him is the gravest of all offenses. To sin against your neighbor is one thing, but to sin against an infinitely holy God, a perfect being, is to deserve an infinite wrath, an everlasting wrath, an eternal condemnation with no end. To sin against a perfect being such as God is to earn an eternal damnation. But again, very few think in these terms today. We don't think much of God's holiness, nor do we think much of our sinfulness. Now, no one claims to be perfect, no one I've ever met, but very few people admit that they are needy sinners in need of a Savior. They look out over the rest of the population, they think they're doing all right by that standard, they ignorantly go on their way, not stopping for a moment to think they will not be judged by their neighbor's standard of righteousness, but by the righteous standard of a perfect, holy, and just God. And I should hardly need to convince you of your sins. You don't even live up to your own standards, let alone God's. Every day you fall short of your own expectations, of your own desires for yourself, let alone the expectations of God's holiness. You don't treat others the way you know you ought to treat them. You speak in a way that you know you ought not to speak. And inside your heart, your thoughts, your motives, your inclinations, your desires testify against you, for they are often impure and holy. And if they should come out, if your intentions and your heart's desires should be known, you and your neighbor would be completely aghast. And so if you don't live up to your own standard of righteousness, is it difficult to believe that you fall short of the glory of God and that daily you sin against his holiness? Dear friend, the only way you will ever appreciate the glad tidings, the good news of which the angels speak, is when you understand also the bad news of the judgment of God and of what we deserve apart from the grace of God because of our sin. The reason so many miss the meaning of Christmas, the reason so many miss this exceedingly great news of a Savior born to you this day is because they think altogether too little of God and altogether too much of themselves and conclude, therefore, they don't much need a Savior. I have actually heard people say that. They have said it to me. Jesus sounds like he's fine for you, but I don't need Jesus. Oh, my dear friends, there are a lot of things you don't need. Many of them are under the tree right now, but we're running after them anyway. 
But if God is holy, and if you and I are sinners, the one thing we need more than anything is Jesus, a Savior. And this is why this is such great news. The infinitely holy and righteous God loves, loves sinners. In spite of their sins, he loves, and he is favorably disposed to them in his Son. This is what the Bible calls grace. The undeserved, unmerited love and favor and mercy of God. What exceedingly great news. And the good news is not, as so many perceive it, that God looked the other way when we sin and pretended as if it was nothing and in effect winked at our sins. That is not the good news. The good news is this, that God caused all of his wrath, all of his white-hot anger against sin, our sin, to be placed upon his Son, Jesus Christ, who bore it on the cross. That is how Jesus loved us. He suffered the awful horrible, infinite wrath of a holy God against sin in his own person on the cross of Calvary. And he did it because he loved us to save us and to make us free. Elsewhere, the Bible puts it this way, the just, that is Jesus, suffered for the unjust, that is you and I, to make us holy. The Son of God came that we might become sons of God. Christ came down to earth that he might lift us up to heaven. Jesus was born of a virgin that his life might be born in us. He came to save, to save from sin, to reconcile us to the Father to do for poor, miserable sinners what they could never do for themselves, to save from death and everlasting hell and eternal horror. That, and nothing less than that, is the true meaning of Christmas. And it's further, dear friends, why the birth of Jesus, as wonderful as Christmas may be, is ultimately empty apart from his cross and his resurrection. In the final analysis, he did not come merely to be born. He came to live a perfect life. He came to die. He came to give his life a ransom for many. And that is why, despite of what the shepherds say, and despite, I'm sure, of what many Christmas Eve sermons declare we must not look for him in Bethlehem. We must not look for him even on the cross. We must look for him where he is, in heaven, seated at the right hand of God, where having been crucified for our sins, he rose from the dead and has taken his rightful throne in heaven 
because he is Christ the Lord, the king and ruler of all. The babe of Bethlehem is now in heaven, having died for sin and having risen again. You and I need to go to the living Christ, to the only Christ there is. Have you gone to him? Let us pray. Oh, Father, um, we must confess our many distractions, our many worries. Will the meal be just right? Will the family get together and get along? Will everyone enjoy and appreciate the gifts? Will we have had a good Christmas? Oh, Father, help us not to be distracted from the main point of it all and the true meaning of it all. And let it not be obscured by our observances. Help us to see, O oh God, you in your holiness and glory and ourselves in our sinfulness and misery what awaits those who do not have a Savior and the horror of it. And we who love you and trust in Christ praise and worship and adore you and are filled with exceedingly great joy that you gave Jesus to be our Savior and to rescue us from our sins and the penalty of them how we thank you, O oh God. I pray for each one here tonight that there would be an awakening in every heart, that we would not be complacent or indifferent to the call of the gospel, that we would hear the voice of Christ even this hour and respond in faith. And may we turn to him and be saved and praise and serve him forevermore with glad hearts. We thank you, we love you, we ask for your blessing upon us now, in Jesus' name.